This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Erica Violet Lee, activist, writer, incoming grad student at OISE here in Toronto. Welcome to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you are joining us from Saskatoon, and today we are going to talk about Canada 150 postpartum. Let's see how we're all doing with that. We're going to talk about... MP Romeo Saganash plagiarizing your work, Erica, and we are going to talk about Omar Cotter, the luckiest guy in Canada, according to Christy Blatchford, and like nobody else ever. Uh, it's good to have you here. Yeah, it's, I love your show, and I'm happy to be on it. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Tyler Stewart, Caitlin Howard, Naomi Lightman, David Patton, Alexis Mantel, Kristen Long, Azar Davis, and Harriet Pierce. Harriet, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you have interesting guests and interesting conversation. This episode is also brought to you by Second City, who are Canada's leading provider of improv comedy classes. Improv-based training is enriching people's lives from theater to the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies. Erica, have you ever done improv comedy? I haven't. I don't think I'd be very good at it. I think that people who haven't done it are the people who, who have the most to gain from it. It attracts like people who kind of like are drawn to it as kids or like extroverts, people want to be funny, who want to get up in front of a crowd. But it's not really about that. I think it's just about interacting with people, being open, saying yes, rolling with things, and it's being embraced in all kinds of different corners, not people who want to perform comedy necessarily, but just uh, communication skills in the boardrooms. Anyhow, Second City is the largest school of improv and sketch comedy in the world. This is where John Candy and Gilda Radner and Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert were trained. It is very social. It's a great way to meet people, build friendships, and it pushes the limits of your creativity. It is collaborative and motivational. Visit secondcity.com slash CanadaLand and you can learn about early bird discounts. You can claim a free drop-in class. You can just go try this if this sounds good to you. That's secondcity.com slash CanadaLand. Why not? This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Over the decades, I've traveled the country from province to province, from community to community, from ocean to ocean to ocean. So Peter, how does it feel? <laughs> this is your last Canada Day, obviously, a day filled with emotions. I was here on the first one in 83 yeah, when yeah. they named it, and you were there. <laughs> That's Peter Mansbridge, everyone. And this, of course, is... Great day of celebration, but also a day of sadness, Peter, because it is your last day. It's my last day. What are they going to do? Fire me? Right? (laughs) But it's not my last day. So besides being part of all these festivities, it's a real honour to be on the air with you on your last day as our chief correspondent. So it makes this day even more special, Peter. Not quite sure what we're going to do. But I thank you. Um, Canada thanks you. Don't be I would not be standing here right now were it not for you. You're, I'm grateful for your guidance. I'm not a fan of long goodbyes, and uh, I, this won't be one. Erica, it's been four days since uh, Peter Mansbridge left us. I feel a little, <laughs> I feel a little untethered. I feel uh, a little adrift. How are you? How are you coping? I'm doing okay. I feel like I'm maybe on the, um, I don't know what age you'd consider the cutoff of youth who don't watch TV so much. So I like remember his face from my childhood and watching it on TV sometimes, but all my news comes from like online stuff, social media now. This 150 thing, thank God, thank God it's done. It was kind of remarkable I was just walking around the streets of Toronto on Canada's 150th birthday in the biggest city in this country, and it was just like a sleepy summer weekend. You would not know that this was the biggest national celebration that this country uh, was supposed to ever have. In Ottawa, it looked like kind of a fiasco of people waiting 
they say they had room for 30,000 people on Parliament Hill. Like there were like 25,000 people waited for eight hours. People gave up. They waited in the rain. Like not with a bang, but a whimper, it seemed to me. I also think that Toronto has its own identity. It's sort of like its own bubble. But uh, I'm in, I was in Saskatoon for Canada Day and there were people wearing like patriotic shirts and there were balloons everywhere that I wanted to go around and pop with pins. Um, <laughs> but like it was it was on overdrive in Saskatoon. And I don't know if that's because we're having like an identity crisis and the only thing we see is like, yay, Canada. Um, what does Canada stand for? We're not America. Um, that sort of rhetoric and I don't know so maybe Toronto can like get past that with your own identity which is I don't know like Drake (laughs) with our own apathy and a surprise Drake concert okay so what did it ultimately amount to it's hard to tell there was certainly an outpouring of patriotism and it sounds like you experienced a bit more celebrators on the streets of Saskatoon it felt to me you know a combination of what you see on the ground and what you're reading in the papers that the counter narrative eclipsed the narrative from the start, people bringing up issues with the CBC's story of us, the indigenous counter protests, uh, using this as a opportunity to actually look at all of these foundational mythologies, those voices, I don't know if they were like louder or if there were more of them, but I think that it was almost like a contrast of a very thin narrative that was not very compelling versus a very serious and substantial narrative. And one just sort of was much more magnetic. Like, Actually, let's pause a minute, because I think that in describing the narrative, nothing did a better job than Jono, than Jonathan Torrance doing this video for CBC Comedy. So let's start there. And I'm just so sorry about this in advance. Thank you, Canada. So in, in a treacly and, and grating falsetto, Jono uh, just went down the list of kind of asinine, inane things that to him define Canada, which include, you know, Gretzky, but like beaver tails, like this kind of donut thing. And, you know, besides like an offhand reference to like a 30 year old hip hop song, he kind of defined what he's thankful for as a very white Canada and one that, you know, like... I like donuts. I guess people like hockey. Uh, there's not a lot there. And and then you get to everything that we read in opposition to that. And it felt to me like the discourse went kicking and screaming with so much resistance to party poopers like yourself who would go and burst balloons um, <laughs> to like, I'm reading editorials now that are like, all right, I suppose we can now discuss some of these things. Like, did you feel like anything was gained well, first of all, I have to say Jonathan Torrens is like my childhood flashback even more than Peter Mansbridge. That was my news. So I have perhaps fonder feelings for him than I do Mansbridge. Street sense. Um, Let's give props to Jono <laughs> for street sense. That notwithstanding, I noticed it and I, I wondered if it was just because of who I hang out with, which is mostly radical, amazing indigenous people and people of color. But uh, yeah, I, I noticed more and more editorials and more and more news coverage that was willing to address it. Um, But I did find at the same time it was news coverage that wanted to address it in a certain way um, that upheld the angry Indian trope. Uh, I did like 12 interviews over the course of a couple days on Canada 150 on Canada Day 
most of the questions started with a statement, a statement that was, um, Indigenous people aren't celebrating Canada Day. Can you explain why? Um, and so already, with, without even um, getting a read, they're putting us all into this space of not celebrating. We don't like fireworks, and we don't. We only like popping Canada balloons, which I do like, and I do like fireworks too. So I tried to flip it on its head and say, "Well, I'm celebrating. I'm going to celebrate firework with fireworks, and I'm going to um, celebrate different things than what most Canadians are celebrating." That's interesting. I mean, I guess there's like resilience and survival are things that are worth celebrating as well. Um, but there were angry voices. I mean, that's okay, right? Yeah. And not just resilience and surviving. Resilience is like, I despise that term because it makes me think of like house plants or something. <laughs> oh, it's so resilient, <laughs> no matter like what we do to it. Um, so I like resistance, um, but also like more than resistance. I'm so excited about some of the new media that's coming out right now. That's controlled by Indigenous folks, like Indian Cowboy, like uh, Red Rising Magazine, this magazine that's thrown together by Indigenous youth in, in uh, Winnipeg that identify as inner city urban youth. All these new voices are finally having platforms that they deserve. So I feel like we're having a renaissance I need to find a Cree term for renaissance so we're not <laughs> staying trapped in the colonial <laughs> language thing, but um, a renaissance, for lack of a better word. So there's lots to celebrate beyond survival. It did feel to me like, and it's a crescendo of a lot of things that are not purely Canada 150 adjacent. I mean, everything around the appropriation awards, going back to the Boyden controversy and before that, uh, and something we've discussed on the show a bunch, that the usual tropes are kind of breaking down where the voice of Indigenous people in this country is sort of like you, you, people at a protest. No, there's there's just so much more active and different voices having very engaged and complicated conversations like Twitter has made a big impact. Like I'm just following a lot of writers now and voices who I've learned of uh, through Twitter. That feels different. And the kind of go-to representatives of different indigenous communities are now joined by all these people who are either academics or just persuasive or just, just somebody who in their spare time has something to say. I feel like that's changed. Maybe I'm, I have like a, a overly optimistic view towards the, the, the value of discourse. I find that even the, the way it roots out some of these like kind of ghastly takes has its own value. Like check this out. National Post, John Robson wrote, Canadians feel for aboriginals, but our patience for too many insults has limits. Aww. So we have Canadians on the one hand and aboriginals on the other. Our refers back to Canadians. So, so our patience as Canadians for too many insults. It like basically like we're getting frustrated. Like we'll listen to you complain. We Canadians will listen to you Aboriginals complain up to a point, but don't push it. Even having that out there, like I know that he thinks that. I know the National Post probably like that's a, a pretty representative concept there. I want that out in the open, and I feel like one thing that we've seen is this. Like I, I'm pro divisiveness. Okay, when you've got one people saying like this is an occasion to actually talk about the lived effects of colonialism right now, and another group of people saying like, but you're spoiling our party. I like knowing who those people are and what they have to say on both sides of it. I think it makes things a lot easier, you know, going forward. Yeah, I, I get to hear the you're spoiling our party every day, even from my native friends who are who think that I um, talk about colonialism too much at at, at our parties or whatever. <laughs> but um, that's sort of 
who I am um, and who a lot of us are. And the other thing is, I think that anger, that angry Indian narrative, I kind of want to reclaim that too. And I want to say like, um, we don't have to be not angry or not complaining in order to be legitimate and have things to say. Um, yeah, I've seen lots of people talking about the the students and youth and folks who are on the teepee, put up the teepee at Parliament Hill just the other day and calling them angry, calling them protesters. And they try to re rewrite that narrative by saying we're actually doing ceremony, which I really like. But at the same time, I think um, ceremony can be a protest too. And protest can be a ceremony. So the definition of ceremony has changed in a lot of ways. And I think that... Um, yelling back at reporters who are um, facing us with racism when they should really know better or getting angry in the face of something that is um, relentless, a machine that's relentless at killing us and erasing us in any way possible. I think that anger is totally justified. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing different versions of confrontations between people who are almost like making a plea for compassion and just to be seen and have a voice. And then this just uh, rather mean, like there's no other word for it, like a cruel like w- refusal. I'm thinking of the uh, the confrontation in Halifax at the Cornwallis statue where there was another indigenous uh, pro- protest and these proud boys show up with these kind of insufferable smirks in their face just to sort of put their bodies there uh, and, and waving a colonial flag. And uh, it turns out that they're all servicemen. I have to think that what is getting revealed here is better than it being all under the surface. As unpleasant as this is, you know, to acknowledge that there there is this rift. I think so. And um, I want to say that I think more and more Canadians are, are understanding and realizing this violence that has been right under their noses the whole time. The violence that it takes to uphold Canada as a state. I know um, my mom is white and she um, tells me the more and more she learns and she does it pretty good, but she learns more and more every day. And she says she feels ripped off by the education she got um, and what it taught her about her place as a Canadian um, in Canada. The myth of the peaceful, benevolent country that is that was so much nicer to its Indians than America was. Well, you, you've certainly uh, had a voice in all of this, and, and some of your words were uh, very powerful and very widely read. They were read in the Globe and Mail. They were published by the Globe and Mail. Unfortunately, they were not published under your byline. And I'm wondering if you can talk about Member of Parliament R- Romeo Saganash plagiarizing you. Uh, yep. Yeah. So I was on my social media, as per usual, looking for news. And I noticed a quote that seemed very familiar to something that I had had written about. So basically, my writing platform is I'm a blogger. I blog and I occasionally do op-eds. I've done an op-ed with the Globe and Mail before, actually. Yeah, but this time I noticed some, some lines that were quite similar to mine. I did a Google search and realized it was my own... Um, writing. And it was from a talk that I had given at Carleton University um, for Indigenous Students Conference. At first, I was kind of confused. and uh, But right away, sort of, Mr. Saganash reached out to me when I raised concern. And so the whole time I'm looking at this, I'm also thinking about what an amazing advocate Mr. Saganash has been, um, how much I've worked with him, and how 
great of a politician he is, and I don't say that about many politicians. Um, so it was conflicting for me, and I don't think I've ever had any higher number of media requests to talk about an issue in my like 10 years of activism than this issue. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, he's a Native man, and I'm a Native woman, and in some ways, it upholds this idea of inner conflict, always going back to inner conflict between the Indians. So it's all resolved. And um, the Globe and Mail did credit me and another student for our words. And I like I don't know about the, the edit- editorial practices, though, because Margaret Wente, Went- am I pronouncing her name right? Wente, yeah. Margaret Wente. Um, she's still working for the Globe and Mail after multiple like obvious plagiarism incidences so um yeah yeah i I, it's a unfortunate one uh and and just so people know i think this passage in particular where you wrote what does it mean to be safe and free in the context of a colonial state the front lines of indigenous struggle are everywhere now from the prairies and rivers to the city streets and in classrooms in a world where our movement is criminalized and our presence is resistance and then the Saganash piece, what does it mean to be safe and free in the context of a colonial state when it is celebrating its sequicentennial? The front lines of indigenous struggle are everywhere now, from the prairies, boreal forests, and rivers to city streets, in classrooms, and in the buildings of parliament, in a world where our very existence is criminalized and our presence is defiance. Uh, is very clearly lifted from you and, and, and admitted as such at this point. And there's some mention uh, that this was... The work of his assistant in the first draft that somehow made it into the last draft, uh, problematic to kind of pin it on some unnamed assistant. But, you know, there's this narrative of indigenous leaders disappointing indigenous people that I think uh, the media might play a role in amplifying that narrative. At the same time, there is a reality in certain cases. I don't know if it's to a greater extent than anywhere else. I must just feel disappointing. Mm-hmm. And it's true. And my writing is like super personal to me, obviously. I had that paragraph also includes mentions of feminism, which is a big part of what I do as a speaker and a writer. I talk about indigenous feminism and the fact that the feminism part was sort of taken out of the, the copied paragraph I thought was funny, but also like appropriate because it's always sort of a fine line uh, between, and I've been stuck in a position many times where I would love to call out members of my community who are buying into patriarchy, chiefs or politicians who are um, doing things that are harmful for our communities, like more than plagiarism, like signing pipeline deals on behalf of our communities. And our ability as Indigenous women is often... Um, we often have to like think twice about it because uh, of the way the system works and how... Um, the white stream media will use that. We will use any any hint of infighting, even when it's just like typical stuff that goes down in in our communities every day. So yeah, it's hard to have those those conversations that need to be have need to be had in our communities in the face of the entire Canadian public. Yeah, it, it sounds like kind of an unwinnable situation, a real catch twenty two. That it, you know, any kind of community, any system with its own governance in keeping its its, its uh, leaders honest and having internal conflicts of any kind. Like, that's just going to happen in any situation. But it, it seems that, that to actually address it, there is this 
very comfortable, reflexive place that people go to saying like, well, indigenous people can't seem to govern themselves cor- uh, properly and their communities are rife with corruption. And, you know, we, we, what, what do they want? We give them autonomy and money and look what they do. Uh, we wash our hands of this whole thing. It's always used an excuse to just like, like basically uh, n- not feel responsible. Mm-hmm. So then that that puts a burden, I suppose, on you to like, are you supposed to kind of like cover that up? Or are you supposed to just have those conversations in private? It must be very difficult. Yeah, I want to use it to talk about bigger issues, like the fact that Globe and Mail um, doesn't have Indigenous women commentators um, as often as they should, or probably rarely. I wonder if someone has done the stats on that. But um, I remember sort of back at the start of when I was writing, when I started writing, I had one of my friends who's a prominent advocate, op-ed writer, got me an opportunity to write for the Globe and Mail. And I wrote a piece on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And it was edited, and I was very proud of it, sent it in. They had commissioned it. And then I got it sent back about a week later with the comments, oh, but we've already published pieces on this before, so sorry. So that's sort of, and I think that's the way that the Canadian media still looks at these issues. Like, oh, we had our missing and murdered Indigenous piece already. We can't do another one too soon. Yeah, and, and I think there's a point in there to, to, to the degree to which this is a violation of the Globe and Mail's own editorial practices publishing plagiarized work. If they had the functionality within their own ranks to write about this stuff regularly, if they had unindigenous voice on staff writing for the Globe and Mail, it's like anything else in journalism. If you have institutional knowledge of a beat, if you have writers and editors in-house who are aware of what's being said, what's being written and by whom, you just do a better job of publishing a product that meets your standards. And if you just kind of like want to cross off a box by occasionally running something by an outside contributor, you are going to be far more vulnerable to mistakes like this. Okay, Erica, I would like to thank our second sponsor, just Casper mattresses. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. I don't know what kind of mattress you favor. That's a personal question. You don't have to disclose. I sleep on a Casper mattress. Uh, I'm very fond of this mattress and uh, I like the whole Casper thing. I like I like it showing up in a box. I like the way it kind of just expanded out in my bedroom. I like not having to go to a big mattress showroom. I like paying like, I don't know, half of what I would have paid. This mattress has over 20,000 reviews online with an average of 4.8 stars. It is the internet's favorite mattress. Free shipping and returns to the US and Canada. You can try it for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they pick it up and refund you everything. It is designed, developed, and assembled in the USA. If people go to casper.com slash CanadaLand, they can check out the very low price for this mattress and in fact get $50 off that low price of any mattress purchased when they use the offer code CanadaLand. Terms and conditions apply. Check it out, casper.com slash CanadaLand. Erica, we duly note things on the show. Can you duly note something for me? I think that I'm really fucking sick of Justin Trudeau's socks and his sock-based diplomacy. How dare you? How <laughs> how dare you? What is it about his socks that has you so offended? I, first off, I must uh, refer to our, our past conversation. Um, I'm playing the angry Indian, so I'm going to get angry at your Canada flag balloons. I'm going to get angry at your Canada flag socks. And I'm just so bored of his rhetoric and how everything is about image. Everything for Trudeau is about image and those socks and the press coverage they get is extraordinary. I have yet to see a great meme that, like, 
takes down Justin Trudeau's socks and like puts beside them his underfunding of indigenous youth education or like, I don't know, stats about how many kids are in foster care. Yeah, there's just nothing that that you could satirize like if you're trying to make fun of like, oh, the press is, is distracted by this guy in trivial ways, a focus on his colorful socks would be a joke that I would like edit out as like, like, come on, let's not be silly. But that actually is something that the the world press has been reporting on. Yeah. And that's how the world still sees Canada. And um, it's it's so strange, like traveling abroad and getting to meet people, um, other indigenous people, though, um, see Canada as a place that's um, like responsible for invading and mining their con- their countries and, and hurting their indigenous people as well. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to like when he he's like a Haida Raven tattoo still also. Um, all these. Symbols. What do you make of that, by the way? What do you, like that, that kills me. What What do you make of that? Um, so I remember seeing Justin Trudeau in the media growing up, and he had this image as this like super nature boy um, that he tried to carry into his the first little bit of his prime ministership with the canoes and the fringe jackets. But the Hyder Raven, I think he like he hasn't shown it lately, as far as I know, because uh, when you're running a pipeline through people's lands. Um, They're not so fond of the appropriation. Duly noted. Can I duly note something for you? Yeah. You know, we typically don't get involved in activist movements here, but I'm going to suggest that uh, free Dave White, free Yukon Radio Dave. Dave White is merely the most recent CBC journalist to criticize CBC on Twitter and then have that tweet mysteriously disappear. Journalists are opinionated, smart, engaged people, but I think that CBC journalists have the least freedom of expression capabilities of any Canadian. They are not allowed to talk about the CBC. They are are not allowed. They can get fired if they opine about the CBC. And we saw CBC tweets disappear. Tom Harrington had the temerity to complain about CBC hiring Kevin O'Leary as a commentator for the conservative leadership uh, broadcast. That tweet disappeared. And now Dave White, Yukon Radio Dave, tweeted, seriously, who writes the CBC comedy garbage? Put a name on it, he demanded. And that tweet disappeared. And who knows what fate has befallen Dave White within within the CBC. I say free Dave White. Let him have his say on CBC comedy. Let CBC journalists speak. It may be okay. It might be okay if they're allowed to criticize the CBC. We might get a better CBC for it, and maybe CBC comedy will become funny or die. Duly noted. Okay, there is a lot to discuss about this Omar Cotter settlement. But for the purposes of this show, Erica, as a media criticism show, I want to focus on how the media is responding to this mm-hmm. and how the public is responding to it and how those two things are connected and, and how and how the political world is, is responding to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to do a much bigger take on the media and Omar Cotter and, and how that has evolved. So we're working on that in the background now and ho- hope to hope to have that to people soon. But anyhow, it was just it was reported that the civil lawsuit that Omar Cotter through his lawyer, Dennis Edney, have launched against the government. Um, there's a ten point five million dollar settlement offer and an apology coming from the government. And this was very quickly jumped on by conservatives like Michelle Rempel and conservative columnists like Christy Blatchford as an indication of everything that is weak 
and just bending over for our enemies, that this is the Trudeau government's fault. And uh, I'm no great defender of the Trudeau government, but I feel like there is just like, this is bad faith communication. The way this is being spun is uh, is a lie, is, is not accurate. Here are the exact statements that I'm referring to here. Conservative MP Michelle Rempel tweeted, when a Canadian soldier is injured in battle, the government provides a disability award up to a maximum of $360,000. Despite this, the current government is willing to provide $10 million to a convicted terrorist. Uh, so here we have this weak government that is actually paying a convicted terrorist. And then Christy Blatchford writing in the National Post, she writes, Cotter is doing all right without our money. He's doing all right, Jack, she writes. Ottawa is on the brink of giving him more than $10 million, and this being Canada, a heartfelt apology. Cotter has plenty of supporters here and more of a shot at a fresh start than many of those who walk away from prison with nothing. Why isn't that enough? Why can't Cotter be content with what he's been given? And the rest of us with knowing that even if he wasn't treated perfectly, he now at least enjoys freedom. Uh, And she also writes that if nothing else, at the very least, it's a brilliant victory for the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and the other extremists. So the terrorists have won. Ottawa has capitulated. It's our government's fault. Erica, on a factual level, I just want to say what a lot of other people have pointed out, which is that this was not anything that the Trudeau government had any bit of a choice. The Supreme Court of Canada again and again ruled that Omar Khadr's charter rights and international law was violated. That in making Omar Khadr the only child soldier to face this kangaroo court in Guantanamo Bay to stand trial for war crimes in like modern history in failing to provide him counsel. No adult, 15 years old, this minor, they interrogated him and they handed him over. In doing that, the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that here, I'll quote, it violates the principles of fundamental justice and offends the most basic Canadian standards about the treatment of detained youth suspects. So they were going to lose. And it was a $20 million lawsuit They were going to lose. If anything, Trudeau saved the government $10 million by offering the settlement. And to suggest otherwise that this is a a weak government capitulating is whipping up a frenzy, like a real frenzy online of people who see this as evidence of Canada as a weak country that is dying to be taken over by terrorists. And it's led to death threats. Michelle Shepard, the Toronto Star journalist who covered uh, Cotter better than anyone, has received death threats for her coverage of Omar Cotter. Yeah, I think it's just exhausting to me how much the Canadian media has failed to represent the story in a lot of ways. Parts of the story that to me are crucial, like um, his whole childhood growing up, um, first off, born in Canada. Second, that he spent his a lot of his childhood facing terror from Western countries Um, The same terrorism that people in Pakistan and Afghanistan and the Middle East face, have faced for decades. And I remember watching his bail hearing um, back in 2015 and the interview that he gave where he was smiling and um, happy. And he said to um, the press, I know that they're expecting me to be angry, but I'm not angry. I'm going to have to disappoint you. Yeah, he addressed that to Stephen Harper, who who fought cruelly and bitterly uh, against this mm-hmm. boy, 
um, very vindictively. And, and he said, I'm, I'm going to have to disappoint you as well, Stephen Harper. I'm not the person that you think I am. And to talk about all, what this guy has gone through is, is a, a, you know, I think a, a huge topic in and of itself. But one message I have for the critics of this deal and for the people who want to make sure that Omar Khadr can never really feel free and never feel safe. If you think you're fighting for patriotism in Canada, what are some fundamental ideas of Canada? Because he's a Canadian citizen and we don't have different classes of citizen. He's a Canadian citizen. Does a child who's accused of a crime have a right to legal representation? Can a child who is accused of a crime be tortured into confessing by a foreign government? If you believe in Canadian sovereignty, if you believe in in the basic principles of justice in a country like Canada, you can't say that in this instance it's okay to to, to that is un, that's a radical un-Canadian position. It's out of step with international law. Like ch- a child soldier is a thing that exists, and we we don't treat them as enemy combatants in the same way. That is, that there's legal distinctions there. But then there's the most fundamental principles of of justice in Canada that were violated. So uh, that is what the settlement is about, is that your fellow Canadian had his charter rights violated by his government. And you should be happy about the settlement. Erica, that is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you for joining me for it. Can I People, you can reach me via email at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send and I respond when I can. And we're on Twitter at Canadaland. Erica, where can people find you? Twitter at Erica Violet Lee and my blog, moontimewarrior.com. Credit this woman when taking her words. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.